Amen. Absolutely. Wasn't that great? Please be seated. Good to be in the house of the Lord today, right? Amen? Absolutely. Um, a couple of weeks ago, Dale asked me if I wouldn't mind um, preaching for a couple of weeks so that he could spend some time with family and get ready for Christmas time and jumping back into Mark chapter 7, um, hopefully in January. So my name is John Anderson. I'm one of the elders here. And so Wendell asked me if I wouldn't mind preaching. I started to think a little bit about all the different backgrounds of all the people that are in here on any given Sunday. And when I think of our backgrounds, everyone in here, including myself, um, at one point may have been indifferent towards God, or maybe somewhat hostile towards God even. But yet, God, in the cross, through the witnesses of others, and through other people who have invested in our lives, has reconciled us to himself, making a way for us to be justified, meaning just as though we had never sinned, through no action of our own, but through the cross alone. What should our response to that be? So if there, think about this. So if there really is a creator God whom all of us have offended, who in that offense has made a way for us to have that sin removed and for us to have right standing before him, well, that has to be the greatest news in the universe. What should be our right good response to that? How should we respond to that? And that's what I want to look at this morning. So this morning I want to start with a question. I have to ask before we get started. But before I ask that question, I want you to open up your Bibles and turn to, or open up your apps and turn to Psalm 63. So I just want to build up this basis, and this thing is going to bother me all day. Um, so I want to build this basis for this question, and then I want to ask the question, and then I want to answer it in Philippians chapter 3. That's where we're going to end up going, is Philippians chapter 3. So I've always been drawn since my conversion to men and women who have this angst-filled desire for more of Jesus. See, I've never been drawn to, you know, you should be a better guy or um, you should live your life this way. I've, I've never been drawn to that. Um, moral rambling, should we say. Now, I understand the biblical basis for morality, but I've always been drawn since my conversion, to those who have a passionate plea for more of God. So let me show you what I mean. So in Psalm 63, starting in verse 1, King David writes these words, O God, you are my God, earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you, my flesh 
faints for you. As in a dry and weary land where there is no water. Do you hear it? This is this is film. This isn't, I want to be a better guy, or I wish I didn't do that. This is, I hurt, I yearn, I long. I've got to have you. I've got to have more of you. There is this, there's this kind of, like, we don't want to use words like violence or lust. There's, there's this violence. There's this lush that I've got to have you. You can hear it in his voice. So let's, let's keep going. Verse 2, so I've looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory, because your steadfast love is better than life. My lips will praise you, so I will bless you as long as I live. In your name, I will lift up my hands. My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food, and my mouth will praise you with joyful lips. You see, this is, this is this consuming idea. When I remember you on my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night, for you have been my help. In the shadow of your wings, I will sing for joy. My soul clings to you, and your right hand upholds me. This is angst. This is passion. This is, I've got to have more of you. I'm clinging to you. I'm yearning for you. He says something similar in Psalm 42. And I have to say, I love King David. I can kind of relate to him on one hand. On one page of the Psalms, he's saying, you're gracious, you're good, you're kind. And then you turn over to another page, and he's like, where are you? Why have you abandoned me? I mean, we can really relate to him. And so, in 63, he's saying, I yearn for you, I long for you, my soul longs for you. But in Psalm 42, he says, in verse 1, as the deer pants for the water, so my soul longs for you. Now, I think in today's modern Christianity, we kind of make that kitschy a little bit. You know, we put a deer on a t-shirt or on a mug and we say, well, it's the, it's the deer pants for the water, so my soul longs for you. But it's not kitschy. It's not cute. I mean, David's got this pain. He says, God, why can't I get there? Why can't I get more of you? He says it again in Psalm 27. One thing I ask, one thing I seek is to dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. That's what I want. Moses cries out, I want to see you. I want to see you. And the Apostle Paul, whom we're going to read a lot from here in a few minutes, is going to say, oh, that I might know him. What? From the Apostle Paul? It's crazy to think that he would say that, that I might know him, that I might get to know more of him, that I might walk with him. There's these angst in these men. 
where there is this treasure that they've got to have and they're willing to pay any price to get there. Okay? And I love reading those men in Scripture. But even in history, it's true. So I brought a couple examples. Um, Augustine, or Augustine, for those of you who have been to seminary, says in Confessions chapter 9, he says this, During all those years of rebellion, where was my free will? What was the hidden secret place from which it was summoned in a moment so that I might bend my neck to your easy yoke? Now listen, how sweet all at once it was for me to be rid of those fruitless joys that I had once feared to lose. You have driven them from me, you who are sweeter, or you who are the sovereign joy, you who drove them from me, and you took their place. You who are sweeter than all pleasure, you who outshine all light, yet are hidden deeper than any secret in our hearts. You who surpass all honor, though not in the eyes of men, who see all honor in themselves, O Lord, my God, my light, my wealth, my salvation. There it is. There is this, you are all I want. You are all I need. You are sweeter than any pleasure. You are greater than any joy. You see, this is pursuit. This is longing. This is desire. Martin Luther said, Oh, I wish to devote my mouth and heart to you. Do not sake me for a moment, for on my own I would easily wreck it all. Spurgeon said, I thank thee that that which is a necessity of my new life is its greatest delight. So I do at this hour feed upon thee. John Owen in his book, Complete Works, says, Beholding the glory of Christ, herein would I live, herein would I die, Hereon would I dwell in my thoughts and affections. And listen to this. To the withering and consumption of all the painted beauties of this world under the crucifying of all things here below until they become unto me a dead and deformed thing that in no way calls out for my affection and remembrances. And probably the most disturbing one, is in a book called The Practice of the Presence by Brother Lawrence. He says, I have had such delicious thoughts of the Lord. I read that and I was like, ooh, bro, I don't know what you mean. I mean, I feel ashamed. I pray for you. Because to this day, all the reading that I do and the theological training I have, I still don't know what he means. But you can see it. There's this angst. There is this yearning. There is, I don't, I don't even know how to describe it. It's so foreign to us. It really is. That I, that I think about this and I wonder, is there a different God? Am I off? Where did I get off? Not only do men yearn for God so violently and lustfully, biblically this way and historically this way, but God even says that the natural order is like this. 
So flip over to Romans chapter 8 for just a minute. We're going to try and finish building up our, our case here to, so that we can ask a question and answer it out of Philippians. So turn to Romans chapter 8, and we're going to start with verse 19. Paul says, for the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself would be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Now here's where it gets really profound. For we know that the whole of creation has been groaning in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait for the adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. So here's what Paul's saying. So not only do have men and women biblically and historically longed and yearned for the fullness of God. But the Bible says that even creation is in this. Even creation that has been pressed or subjected to futility is longing to join in with the freedom that has been given to the sons and daughters of God. The lifting of decay, the weight of sin. So, we, so because of that, we know why the wolf we know why the whales groan. We know why the trees creak. We know that they are groaning because there is something intrinsic in all of creation that remembers what it was like before it was subjected to futility. And so it now waits eagerly, watching the sons and daughters of the king so that the last one will come into the kingdom and this thing will be over and they will be set free. It's kind of like they yearn, they groan, they long. They feel this pain in their own way. It's like a really demented VeggieTales episode where the cucumber and then the tomato are like, ah, free us! Right? Amen? VeggieTales, anybody remember them, please? Don't leave me hanging. Thank you. So here's my question. And we're going to have to go to Philippians to answer it. Biblically, do men feel this way about the Lord? Yes, check. Historically, have men felt this way, walked this way, pursued the Lord this way? Yes, check. Does creation feel and yearn and long for the redemption in the fullness of Christ? Yes. Check. So my question isn't about those three. So my question very bluntly, with all love I have in my heart for you, why don't we? I mean, why don't we? Like, why are we so easily satisfied? Why is this uncommon? This shouldn't be uncommon. Romans 8 says that we all ourselves, we the covenant community, 
We groan. We groan inwardly all. But you see, that's the problem. I don't see a lot of groaning. I find myself far too easily satisfied with my relationship with the Lord, far too easily satisfied with where I am spiritually. So my question is, why don't we groan? Why don't we long? Why don't we have this deep, violent, lustful desire to pursue him, to chase him, to know him, to love him in ever-increasing and ever-deepening ways? Why are we so easily satisfied? That's my question. Why are so few of us concerned about such weighty, thick scriptures that read like, not everyone on that day who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter into my rest. I will say to some, depart from me, you cursed, for I do not know you. Well, didn't I prophesy? Didn't I cast out demons in your name? Yes, but I do not know you. This is a terrifying text to me. That you can be all over this thing. You can prophesy, you can cast out demons, but yet not know him. So why isn't this a part of who we are? I, I think I know why. I didn't know why 10, 12 years ago. But I think I know a little better now. I think there's this misunderstanding about our faith that has put all of the weight of our faith on conversion without, without expectation for afterwards. So we put so much weight on our faith on conversion without much weight or expectation for what goes on afterwards. So let's go to Philippians, and we're going to try and solve the dilemma of a lack of yearning, a lack of desire, a lack of pursuit. So go to Philippians chapter 3, and we're going to start out in verse 1. Finally, my brothers... Rejoice in the Lord. To write these same things to you is no trouble for me, and it is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Here's what Paul's saying. He's saying that there are those who will mark their faith in Christ by what they do and do not do. They want to get a list of things that they do well. They go, well, I'm not as bad as I was in college. I'm not as bad as I was when I first got married. And they want to use that as some sort of evidence for their spirituality and their goodness. So Paul is saying, watch out for that kind of faith. 
The kind of faith that says, you should listen to me and you should follow me because of the good things that I do. Okay, so now watch where Paul goes with this. He's going to put them up against those who would say that. We pick up in verse 4 again. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. I mean, wow, blameless. According to the law, I'm without fault. So let's, let's take a second and, and roll that into modern times, okay? You have reason to boast. I have reason to boast all the more. I have never missed a small group meeting. I have never missed a Sunday morning. I read my Bible every day. I have memorized the New Testament. I have shared the gospel with all my neighbors. I haven't said a cuss word except invented cuss words like, oh, ding bong, and stuff like that. I have never used a real cuss word in 25 years. I have never listened to secular music. I have never seen a rated R movie that wasn't about Jesus being crucified. Look what I've done. Look what I've accomplished. And Paul is going to say as loud as he can, who cares? Who cares? And then look at why. He picks back up in verse 7. But whatever gain I had, and let's be honest, good came from those. Good came from never missing a Sunday morning worship service. Good comes from guarding what you watch. Good can come from guarding your life in those ways. All right? So here's where he's going. For whatever gain I have, I count it as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything a loss because of the surpassing worth. And I just want to stop right there. If you look at the Greek word for surpassing and for worth, worth, it's the same Greek starting word. So really what he's saying, and in the NIV it says surpassing greatness. And it's translated into the same word twice. So the greater great is how I like to look at that. So I count everything as a loss because of the greater great of knowing Jesus Christ my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ, present tense, and be found in him, not with the righteousness of my own, which comes from the law, but from that which comes from faith in Christ, the righteousness of from God that depends on faith. So what Paul is saying here is he's trying to unpack these reasons 
to violently and lustfully pursue Christ at all costs. Because he's saying that if you get all these things, if you never struggle with lust and you clean up your life and, and you make your life look on the outside the way the Christian community says it should look, but you don't get Jesus, you've lost. Who cares? So he's saying, don't let that be the goal. Don't let that be your goal. So he says, I count it all rubbish. Those are good things. Those are not bad things. They're not evil things. But he's saying that they're rubbish next to you. I count them as all lost. I'll walk away from all of it if I get you. So Paul's going to unpack these four reasons why we should violently and lustfully pursue Christ. We're going to cover one of them today and we're going to pick up with the rest of them next week. But here's the first one. And we've already touched on this one. First reason to go hard after Jesus. It's to know him. To know him. So why do we go hard after Jesus? Can I throw out just a crazy idea to you? Since Christ is infinite, there will always be more of him to have. Because Christ is infinite, there's always more of him to be had. One of those things that I, in classes that I've taught, one of the most frustrating things in my Christian walk for me personally is in my mind, sometimes I think I'm getting close to Christ. You know, I think I'm the man Christ wants me to be, and, you know, I think I'm getting real close. But then I realize just how far away I am from being Christ's example. And I got to tell you, sometimes I get a little frustrated with that. But I know that we're all just a work in progress. Every day is an opportunity to be more like Jesus in our attitudes and actions. So don't give up. Keep going hard after Jesus. Because there's always more of him to be had. If you live to be 120 years old, there will always be more of him to have. The Bible tells us in Ephesians that in the coming ages, are you tracking with me? This isn't just years, this is ages. In the coming ages, he will start to impact for you the fullness of who he is. There's always more of him to be had. So Paul is pleading with us, don't get caught up in secondary pursuits to know him. So here's what I've tried, how I've tried to teach this in classes. I think what ends up happening is we come to know the Lord. He transforms us intellectually, spiritually, through the example of another. He saves us, however he chooses to do that. And there is this love that takes place between us and God. 
And I think very quickly, if we're not careful, that this love is replaced with, I got to clean up my life. I got to clean up my life. I got to get better. So I want to unpack it like this. I think there are two questions you have to constantly ask yourself. Is what stirs your affections for Jesus Christ? What is it that when you're around it, when you're in it, what is it that stirs your affections for Christ that you want to know him, to love him, and to worship him? Because here's the thing about this. It's going to look different for each one of us. But here's what I know. It's going to involve scripture. It's going to involve prayer. It's going to involve worship in some fashion. But outside of that, I believe that God gives us the freedom to explore what that looks like personally. So I'm going to give you a few things on my list. Okay? You're going to think that they're probably kind of silly, but that's okay. These are things that stir my affections for Jesus. First one is I love to go to cemeteries. I like to walk around. I like to find headstones of someone who is the same age as I am. And I like to ponder. I like to wonder, were they married? Did they have kids? Did they have grandkids? Did his life look like mine at that point? Did he picture himself as an old man? I don't know. In that moment, though, I became keenly aware that I am mortal. I became keenly aware that one day I'm going to have to stand before God hopefully many years in the future, and give an account for my life, and I cannot clean it up by myself. And in that moment in the graveyard, I became aware of the fact that I love Jesus Christ. I love him. He is my only hope. He is my salvation. I love him. Second one. I love early mornings. I do. I love getting up, driving to work, and having the sun come up with me on my travels. The beauty of Michigan fall colors, seeing the dew glisten first thing in the morning. Man, God's creation is wonderful. The third one, is there is something about the smell of donuts from the North Branch Bakery. <laughs> I mean, how silly is that? That early in the morning, I'm at the bakery, and I smell the donuts, and I go, to Jesus, I love you. I love you, Jesus, I love you. I mean, how silly is that? Look, no one's going to train you in righteousness that way. 
No one's going to say to you, okay, 6 a.m., go to the bakery, get yourself a custard-filled stick, and then what? Take it to the graveyard. No, that's silly. That's, that's weird. You see, those are things that stir my affections for Jesus. The fourth one, epic movies. Man, I love Lord of the Rings. I'll sit and watch it every time. It's on TV. I, I can be in the middle of the second movie, and Denis will be, what are you doing? I'm like, I'm watching the movie. And she says, well, it started five hours ago. I'm like, okay, it doesn't matter. I love it. I love the themes. I, I just love everything about epic movies. The fifth one, I love reading old dead guys. I love reading Edwards and Martin Luther and C.S. Lewis and J. Adams. They write in such a way that it's foreign to us today. Which is crazy because they didn't have the internet. They didn't have commentaries. All they did was read a little bit of scripture and contemplate on it. And then they wrote these wonderful treaties about the beauty of God. I love that. Now here's where it gets crazy. Okay? Those are some of the things that stir my affections for Jesus. Okay, So you have to ask yourself the reciprocal question to that. What robs you of your affections for Jesus? And here's the crazy thing about my list. And I've been saved now for almost 30 years. I've been saved a long time. It's not major things that get me anymore. Okay? So if I walk out of here in a few minutes and somebody comes up to me and says, hey, you want to go rob a bank? I'm not going to struggle with that. That's not going to rob me of my affections for Christ. I'm not going to go, well, you know what? I need to get a piece of paper out, write down pros and cons, okay? Pros, okay. Um, the thrill of robbing a bank, and I'm, you know, I might get away with it. The cons of it, well, probably going to get caught, probably going to lose my job, probably can't be an elder anymore. Dania's probably going to be really mad at me. <laughs> I'm not going to struggle with that. In fact, track with me for just a minute. Morally neutral things are far more apt to rob me of my affections for Jesus than heinous wickedness. Because God has grown me to the place where those things just don't appeal to me. So I want to give you some of the things that rob my affections for Jesus, okay? And you may think they're silly, but they're what robs my affections for Jesus. First one, I can't follow sports too closely because I'll start to care. And how dumb is it that how a 21-year-old handles a ball can ruin my day? Or a group of 53 men who wear Honolulu blue and silver can frustrate me to no end. It's silly. I start to care. 
So I can't follow sports too closely. Second one, I can't watch too much television. Now, I'm not one of those that says, oh, that's a demon box. It'll suck you in. I, I've never been one of those guys. I think there's a lot of good things on TV. But here's what happens. When I watch too much TV, I unplug from holy things, and here's what happens. I begin to laugh at things that God calls wicked. So I can't watch too much TV. The third one, something simple is sleeping in too long. It'll make me get up in a rush, not center myself on him, and just begin the day's task. So those are some things that rob my affections for Jesus Christ. So here's the deal. Are we living a life in pursuit of Jesus versus let me fix myself up so that I can one day present myself as okay to the Lord, which is contrary to the gospel? It is religion. It's contrary to what Jesus came for. Instead of, I want to live a life where I get to know you, worship you, walk with you, enjoy you, and grow in my knowledge of you. So you have to ask with these things, do they help with that? But you see, here's the, here's the thing. I can't put that list on you. Okay, that's my list. I mean, I can't tell you not to watch sports. I can't tell you not to watch TV because then what do we have? We have legalism. That's just not good. We're into some weird, goofy stuff at that point. Dwayne Coutts is a really good friend of mine. I'm going to pick on him for a moment. But he's not the same as me. Okay? He's not going to get up at 5 a.m. and read Spurgeon, right? Dwayne? Nope. And for me to expect that of him, you really should read more Spurgeon, by the way. Um, but for me to expect him to do that, it's just not fair. Now, Dwayne would get up and grab his guitar and sing praises, of, songs of praises to the Lord. I'm not going to do that. And to ask me to do that, I just don't think the Lord would be, yep, exactly. Um, I just don't think the Lord would be happy with that. I think the Lord would be like, John, read and think, buddy. Read and think. Don't sing to me anymore. And I think, don't get me wrong, before I get cards and letters, yes, I do believe that the Lord loves it when I sing to him, okay? Let's be clear about that. I think in Hebrews 12, it clearly states what this is. 
It states, let us throw off everything that hinders you, and then listen to this, and the sin that so easily entangles. So the writer of Hebrews actually separates the idea that there are hindrances that are not sinful, and there are sinful hindrances. So do you live your life? Now this is a question, and we're going to close with this. It's a question. It's a difficult question. Do you live your life by saying, here's what is right and wrong. I'm going to do what is right and avoid what is wrong. Is that your Christian walk? Is that your Christian life? Or is it, I want to know him. I want to increase in my knowledge of him. I want to worship him. I want to love him. I want the parts of my life that don't to die and be replaced by a heart full of love that loves him completely. That is the biblical life. So why pursue Jesus violently? Why pursue him lustfully? It's to know him. To know him. I believe if we want to change this church, that if we want to change the places where we live, work, and play, that if we want to change ourselves, it begins by knowing him in ever deepening, ever-increasing ways. So today, if you're not satisfied with where you are spiritually, you can start today. There's no magic formula I can give you to know Jesus more, to know him deeply, to love him, to pursue him, to want more of him than this. Know him. Get to know him. And don't let anything stand in your way. Don't let secondary pursuits, don't let anything rob you of your affections for Christ. And those things that do, get rid of them. Because as Paul says in chapter 3, there is nothing greater than knowing him. I count it all loss that there is nothing in this world that should keep me from knowing him. And whatever that is, whether... I'm going to back this up a second. If I thought today that there was something hindering me from Christ, I would get rid of it in a second. Whether it's being an elder, whether it's being a teacher, whether it's being... Um, I don't know, whatever. I would easily chuck it off if I got more of him. That's my prayer today. That is my earnest desire is that you know him in ever-increasing, ever-deepening ways. Let's pray. God, our gracious Heavenly Father, Lord, thank you. 
Thank you that you are a God who loves his children. That you are a God who is available. That we can simply call on you. And that we will never, we will never exhaust the resource of who you are. That you love us so much. That you come to us when we call that. Even if we think we know everything there is to know about you, Scripture clearly states there's more of you to be had. So, Father, create in us a heart that longs, that deeply yearns, that wants to have more and more and more of you because there is more of you to be had. Father, we simply praise you and thank you this day. For the example of Christ, to know that even though we may mess up, that we may seem far away from you, that you desire for us to grow closer to the image of your son Jesus and that you have provided a way for us. We praise you and thank you in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Amen. So now as we prepare to take communion,